Today I want to continue with this amazingly rich uh, text, which is the wife of Astrogog uh, in conjunction with her tale. And let's remember a couple of things I've said already, that there are two tales, in, in my opinion, the wife of baths and the pardoners, in which the self-presentation of the teller in an extended and rhetorically elaborate and elegant prologue is at least of equal importance with the actual tales that they tell. But of course, as always, there's an interesting and cunning relationship between the teller and the tale uh, for us to uh, contemplate. I've also alerted you to the fact that it seems to me that all of this third fragment, or fragment B, which goes on to include the uh, Sumner uh, and the Friar, is unified by its common interest in the theme of substance and surface, surface and substance. What lies on the surface of a situation and what its indwelling reality is. In literary terms, in the literary terms that Chaucer would be familiar with, we could call this the difference between the letter of the text, what it actually says, and the spirit, that is, the thing that it means at a deeper level. This ties in very nicely with the whole idea of Sentence and Solas, which he established as the twin goals for any tale that would be tell, would be told. But of course it also immediately points to the text that from which such terminology uh, derives, and that is to say the Bible. So that it's, this makes a little more sense of what otherwise might seem very surprising, that almost immediately that she gets into her prologue, the wife of Bath becomes a very formidable uh, scriptural exegete. And in particular, she begins with two texts, both of which seem to be about thirsty women, the story of the wedding at Cana in Galilee in which Jesus turned water into wine, the story of the Samaritan woman uh, at uh, Jacob's well. And I hope you also believe me because I think I gave you the smoking gun for it in the handout, that in a most cunning way, Chaucer is reaching back across the Christian era to Ovid and to that character named Dipsas, whose name means great thirst or voracious thirst, and that this is a technique that we're going to see very, very frequently. That is to say, the linking of a pagan myth with a Christian myth out of the Bible, uh, these two things being put together uh, for uh, strategic purposes. Now notice that exactly the same thing happens in the wife of Bath's tale that we'll get to at the end of this lecture, in which she begins by turning back to the Ovidian story from the Metamorphoses, the Ovidian story of King Midas. That ought to remember, remind you, of the very first of the Chaucerian poems that we read, namely the Book of the Duchess, <clears throat> which begins with a quite similar move with another story from the Metamorphoses, 
of Ovid, uh, namely the story of Saix uh, and uh, Alcyone. There's another binary that is at work here, and it's announced in the very opening lines of the prologue. Experience, though non autorite, where in this world is rich enough for me to spake of woe that is in Meriahia. That is to say, a binary of experience and authority, what might be to say street smarts versus book learning. Authority points to that idea of a written text, and in this context, it would have to be a Latin theological authoritative work of some kind, and we'll come to see exactly what he has in mind uh, a little bit later, as opposed to the actual lived experience that the wife of Bath has. Now, what she's saying in those lines is, I don't need any authority to tell me what a bad deal marriage is because I've experienced it in my own life. I've been married five times, and uh, it was a more or less a disaster uh, from A to Izzard. But notice <clears throat> that there's something very strange about this, that although she begins by abjuring any claim of authority, she very, very quickly becomes a great authority herself. I don't know of any other text in Chaucer that is more densely learned than the wife of Bath's prologue. Uh, you know she uses the word octogamy, for example, the joking re reference to somebody who'd been married eight, been married eight times, that's three more than she has uh, even. Well, this is a phrase, this is a term that comes out of St. Jerome, I'll explain this uh, in uh, a second. It's the only place in Middle English or in any other English that you're ever going to run into the word octogamy and it's not the kind of word that a vernacular monoglot milliner of Bath is likely to be using. So there's a huge difference between the posture of the secular, the female, the vernacular narrator here, and the hyper-learned uh, Latin exegete that Chaucer, in a certain sense, uh, turns her, in a certain sense, turns her into. Now, I'm convinced this is not on the basis of my own research, but on the basis of uh, research done by uh, uh, Robert Pratt at the University of Pennsylvania probably 30 or 40 years ago. I'm convinced that the Wife of Bath's prologue is one of several texts <coughs> in which we can clearly see the evidence of Chaucerian revision. And that is to say that he wrote it out he thought about it, and he changed it dramatically. And we have texts that would, I mean, we have different manuscripts that would suggest this. There is a, there are two source books that you might want to know something about. One is by Manley and Rickert. Uh, it's over in the Scribner Room. Uh, eight or twelve large volumes that uh, have every reading in every manuscript of the Canterbury Tales. And if you get really interested in this, you might go and take a look at them because they record also the glosses that have been written in the margins of the Wife of Bath uh, prologue. And we have good reason to think that Chaucer actually wrote some of those Latin glosses himself. Uh, they're the sort of things you would do as you're writing a term paper, making notes and preparing footnotes 
and so on. Uh, and the, uh, the way that this uh, prologue, I think, originally uh, stood was that the second part of the prologue, which has to do with the life of Bass marital autobiography, was all there was. <laughs> that is, it was considerably shorter than it is now. Uh, and that it begins, it began more or less when she started a review uh, of her husband. You might notice there's quite a stylistic change, quite a stylistic difference, <laughs> incidentally, uh, in those two parts of the, in those two parts of the prologue. The part that I'm talking about now credibly could be the vernacular reminiscences of a woman. It's full of learning, but not nearly as learned as the, uh, as the first part. What is the great theme of that second part? Well, it really is the marriage theme. I've already told you that a lot of scholars think that the wife of Bath is introducing an important theme that is going to be carried on uh, sequentially in a number of different tales. The marriage theme, marriage here understood in a quite literal and a social sense. That is to say that Chaucer is interested in exploring the dynamics of human uh, marriage, and in particular from the semi-comic point of view of who wears the trousers, more or less. The wife of Bath's word is maestria. She seeks to gain maestria, or mastery, over her husband. That is, to rule them, to henpeck them. But that word maestria is, of course, the same word that we have in schoolmaster or a master's degree, whatever. That is to say, it implies also a command of academic knowledge uh, of, uh, of book learning. It is the second part of the prologue, this numerical autobiography, that is most revealing in terms of the sentimental nature of the wife of Bath. So this very famous line, you know, when I, she thinks about her youth, Lord Christ, you know, when he remember me upon me youth, when I think back in the good old days, boy, I was a hot number and the boys were really after me then and so on. It is, I think, really very moving. It's the kind of uh, uh, experience that anybody who begins to age can understand. So it's, there's much more sort of realism, I would say, in the second half of the wife. Uh, uh, prologue. But at some very early stage, Chaucer, I think, decided that he also wanted to make this philosophically significant by examining some of these other themes that I've already mentioned to you. Surface and substance, the hermeneutical, the exegetical theme, the idea of interpretation. He's going to run with this in the Summer's Tale uh, and the Friar's Tale, but he introduces it uh, in a prominent uh, way, uh, a way here. <coughs> and unfortunately, once again, I've got to tell you about a book that you've never heard of and uh, wouldn't read if you had heard of it uh, because it is really genuinely repellent. It is a book called The Adversus Jovinianum of St. Jerome. I've given the name of it here. He actually quotes this by name during the Wife of Bath's prologue. As you may remember, when we get to the book that her husband has, the Book of Wicked Weavers, <coughs> one of the pieces in that anthology is so-called Jerome against Jovinian. 
Now, Jerome was an early church father. He's most famous as being the translator of the Vulgate Bible. In a certain sense, he wrote the Bible for the Middle Ages. That is, took the Hebrew and Greek text and put them into Latin, making the Bible that uh, Chaucer uh, uh, would, have, uh, would have known. Like many of the other early fathers, he greatly, and I would say in a most exaggerated manner, prized the virtue of sexual virginity. Now, of course, in the Middle Ages, uh, anybody going into the priesthood was required to take a vow of celibacy. As you know, this is still true in the Roman Catholic uh, Church uh, today. It's not too easy to get young men who are willing to take a vow of chastity in the 20th or 21st century. It really wasn't too easy in the 3rd, 4th, 5th, or 6th centuries either. And a whole body of literature grew up around this issue. Actually, it's continuous with a body of literature that you find in ancient uh, philosophy. These were called dissuasives against marriage. Um, the gist of this is you can't be a serious priest, scholar, holy person of any kind if you're married, not merely because there's something deeply suspicious about sexual life itself, there is that undercurrent of it, but just take it at the practical level. You've got to be worried about your wife. You've got to be worried about earning a living. You've got to be worried about changing the kids' diapers and so forth. And this is the nature, uh, of, uh, this is the nature of these books. Now, Jovinian, about whom we absolutely know nothing except what has been preserved in the amber of Hieronymite satire. Is that a pretty good phrase, the amber of Hieronymite satire? That just came to me. <laughs> just now, right. Hieronymite is the adjective that goes with Jerome, because Jerome in uh, Latin is Hieronymus. That is to say, all we know about Jovinian uh, is what is recorded in, in Jerome's satire. He was a monk who <coughs> seems to me to have made the following gross heretical statement, something like this. There's some chance that married people might get into heaven. Now, I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to be polemical or argumentative here, but every now and then I throw out to classes like this the following challenge. Can you name me six or eight people, women, who were canonized by the Roman Catholic Church who were married at the time of their deaths? And uh, we don't even, we're not even sure about the Virgin Mary, but I'll give you that one. We'll sort of chalk that one up. But her marriage was of a very special time, as, as you admit. Now, that is this early Christian bias against sexuality and, uh, and marriage is evident uh, in, that, in, <coughs> in that situation. Well, Jerome really went after Jovinian and presented him as though he were some incredible voluptuary and uh, a d destroyer of all Christian morals and so forth. And long after anybody had forgotten about who Jovinian was or what he might have actually said, you had this big book, <laughs> the Jerome against Jovinian, that kind of rumbled through the Middle Ages 
as a great anthology of anti-matrimonial sentiment, pure misogyny. One of the reasons you don't want to get married is because women are so terrible. And we'll see some of the ways uh, in, which, in, in, which they are, in which they are terrible. Now, Chaucer, I think, saw in this body of literature a great opportunity uh, to talk about some of the texts that he was going to be particularly interested in. This explains why very early on in The Wife of Bass Prologue, she takes up an ascetic theme. You know what asceticism is? Ascet monasticism. Ascetic theology is that branch of Christian teaching that has to do with withdrawing from the world, with fasting, with uh, celibacy, and uh, so on. And he takes up the ascetic theme of perfection. One of the first things that the wife of Beth st starts talking about is what is the difference between what is perfect <clears throat> and what is slightly less than perfect. Now, to understand what perfection means, you have to think in Latin for just a moment. Perfectus is the past, past participle that you want to know here. It means finished, complete, risen to the highest possible level that you can get to. And as far as uh, the medieval church was concerned, that highest possible level was celibacy, or for women, virginity. Okay, what is next best? Next best is widowhood. St. Paul, who laid down a lot of the Christian doctrine about uh, marriage, and I'll come to this uh, in just uh, a second, uh, has quite a bit to say about widows. And basically what he says is, if you're a widow, boy, are you ever lucky. You know, you got out of it one time, whatever you do, don't be so dumb as to go back and get married again. Now, the wife of Bath is a widow many times over, right? And notice that she's gotten wealthy being a widow. When her last husband attacks her, she says, oh, you've killed me for me long. She's a great landowner from all this stuff that she has, uh, that, that she has inherited. What St. Paul says, his uh, comforting words about uh, Christian marriage are these. It is better to marry than to burn. It is slightly better than a poke in the eye with a sharp stick. Somewhat better than the black death or the hydrogen bomb, but not much. Now, that's not a terribly affirmative attitude toward marriage. Uh, but it had to be okay because, after all, Jesus did go to a wedding at Cana in Galilee. He couldn't have been against the whole institution. So marriage was okay. Much better to be a virgin. And then, if you have the good luck to become a widow, and the sociology of the situation is that nine times out of ten, it would have been the man who dies leaving a female widow. If you have the good luck to be a widow, stay that way. And then there's another third acceptable level, and that is to say simply to be married. That's not bad. Not really. I mean, they say it in this kind of tone of voice. It had to be okay. St. Augustine was even able to write a book called De Bono Conjugale concerning the good things about marriage. He couldn't think of any good things to say about marriage, but he knew philosophically there had to be uh, some, and so he tried to do so he tried to do so uh, theologically. Now that 
is a clerical cast of mind. You see, this is a theological cast of mind that comes out of a male church, Latin-speaking church, and so on, and it's being imposed uh, on everybody. And this, this is, these are the issues uh, that the wife of Bath takes up, and she takes them up, it seems to me, to be very uh, uh, amusingly. At line 105, on page 106, she admits that vir virginity is great. Virginity is great perfection, uh, and continence ache with devotion, but Christ, that of perfection is well, that not every wick he should go sell all that he had and give it to the poor, and in which we follow him and his four, he spake of him that would have perfectly, and lordings be your leave that am not he. Okay, I'm not trying to be perfect. Perfection is not for me. Satisfactory C in the course is all I'm looking for. And she quotes the all-star chapter of the Bible. You know, if you're in a huge hurry and you don't have time to read the Bible, which would be a huge pity <coughs> if you ever want to understand most of Western literature, but if you only have five minutes, you know, to get the gist of the thing, I suggest that you read the 19th chapter of the Gospel according to St. Matthew. It's the all-star chapter. It has everything in it. It has, for example, uh, literal and metaphorical eunuchry, something we need to know about when we get to the partner. <clears throat> there are uh, his friends are talking to Jesus, and uh, uh, Jesus makes marriage sound really, really hard, and, and uh, says, you know, you ought not to get divorced and so on. And the friends say, boy, if it's, if, if it's, uh, if it's, if it's this way, I, I don't understand, you know, what you ought to do. And Jesus says, well, there's three kinds of eunuch. Turns out that eunuchry is just like greatness. There are those who were born great. There are those who achieved greatness. There are those who had greatness thrust upon them by other people. Okay? Now, that's the kind of eunuchry that that's what happened to Peter Abelard when Heloise, found, I mean, Heloise's uncle found out about the hanky-panky that had been going on. Let him who can accept it, accept it. There are those who were born eunuchs. There are those who have been made eunuchs by other people. And there are those who have made of themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of God's sake. Let him accept it who can accept it. That's a symbolic castration, obviously. He's talking about uh, giving, up, you know, giving up sexual life, becoming uh, a celibate. Let him who can accept it accept it, not everybody. And the young man to whom he's talking is not one of those who can accept it. He's very much like the wife of Bath. He's not worried about sex. He's worried about money. Jesus says, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Pick up your cross and follow me. And he went away sad, for he had much possessions. Great Franciscan uh, text. This is the same chapter where you get the stuff about it's easier for a rich man uh, to, to go through the eye, eye of a needle. Uh, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. Not because God doesn't like rich men. Uh, but simply, if you have that huge backpack and the stereo and all that kind, of, you're not going to be able to squeeze through that little uh, through that little area. So these are texts of ascetic perfection that the wife of Bath is insistently and very very amusingly drawing into her text. She says you don't like sex. She says where do you think virgins come from? You know you're going to get them at CVS. You know, this, kind of, this kind of thing. And abstain from, se from, from sex for 60 years and see what happens. Well, that's a great argument. Only trouble is it's one of the arguments. It's 
brought up by the fathers of the church themselves. I was talking with my precept this morning. Every now and then, we run into one of these topics where our instinctive attitude to the subject matter is about exactly 180 degrees opposite of what it was in the Middle Ages. <laughs> when I was uh, a young person in college, uh, a book that was the great rage was by Norman O. Brown called Life Against Death. It was a popular rendition of Freud's theories which explain that the great motive power behind human civilization, as well, of course, as all its problems, is the sex drive. That's what keeps us going, what keeps society going. Now, from the, middle, from the medieval point of view, sexual appetite, unreasonable, un irrational sex, as they thought of it, uh, was not on the side of life, it was on the side of death. It had entered the world only as the result of the archetypal sin. This is what happens in, in, in uh, uh, Paradise Lost, if you've read that by uh, Milton. Sin gives birth to death. Or in the book of Genesis, the mo they've been walking around like naked as jaybirds and happy as anything and enjoying everything that there was to be enjoyed. And suddenly, the moment they sin, they look at each other and see that they are naked and they feel a shame. And now there is a shame that is to be attached to that privite that we were looking at, uh, that, that privite that we were looking at uh, in, the, uh, in, the, in the Miller's Tale. Now, <clears throat> there is uh, a wonderful dramatic moment at the end of the wife's uh, uh, speech, it's on page 107, when the pardoner interrupts her. Uh, Upskirt this pardoner and that anon, he says, be dom, quote, hey, be God, and be St. John, he had been a noble preacher in this time. He was a boot to wed a weep. Allah, we should have been on me flesh so dear. I was about to get married, and we're all supposed to go, oh, 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 because we know you are a eunuch. <laughs> now, he's one of these eunuchs, uh, ex utere natus, born a eunuch from his mother's womb. Etro, he were a gelding or a mare. He simply has no sexual organs. So you have the Mr. and Mrs. Jack Spratt of sexual asceticism here between the wife of Bath and the pardoner. And there is a very a most interesting relationship between them. Now I really tried to dazzle you with today's handout. <laughs> Notice that it includes some Greek. I think that is so cool because you might want to know at some point what the Greek word for horse leech is. And the Greek word for horse leech, uh, obviously, is bidella. In, in English, you don't even get this BD that, that, that go together. But what I'm interested in is a text in the Wife of Bass prologue itself. And this is at line uh, 362, where she is summarizing uh, she's summarizing the, all the nasty things that anti-feminist literature says about women. And what are some of those things? Thou sayest, thou sayest that there been thing as thray, the which a thing is trouble in all this earth, and that no wick to may endure in the firth. This is a biblical construction. If you go to the book of uh, Proverbs, they do this all the time. 
there are three things that the wise man seeketh after, and a fourth thing that the wise man will seek early and late, this kind of thing. There are three things that taste good, and there's one that's really delicious. There are three things to be avoided, and another to be avoided at all costs. Uh, th th this kind of thing. So this is what you have. You got three things and a fourth. And what are these things the, that you're, you're, you're preaching? Thou preachest and sayest an hateful reef, he reckoned is for one of those mischance. Been there known other manner raisin blanc, that ye may leak in your parable as toe, but if a silly weef be own of though. Now, you compare a woman to three things. You compare a woman, a uh, woman's love, to hell. You compare it to barren land, where uh, there is no water. And you compare it also to wild fire. And the more the wildfire burns, the more it desires to burn. Now, here's one of the great Freudian fantasies of the male imagination, a great fear of female sexuality, and it clearly is buried here. There is an enormity of appetite in the female that is so fantastic as to be uh, world-destroying. Now, where do these three things come from? This is what I'm, 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 I'm interested in. Uh, St. Jerome, of course, when he made up the Vulgate Bible, was working from the Septuagint text. That's this Greek text. Uh, it was very widely spread around the Greco-Roman world, the Hellenistic world. Even the Jews read the Bible, primarily not in Hebrew, but in Greek. And uh, just to show off, I gave you the Greek text. The only word that you need to pay any attention to is the third word in the front line, the first line, and that is trace. And if you know any Latin or Spanish or anything else, you'll recognize that that is not the number two, but the number three. That is, the proverb text says, there are three things, and goes on to list them. These same three things, now translated into Latin, show up in Jerome against Jovinian. I don't know why or when it was that Jerome decided that there was some mistake in this text, and that there were not three horrible things, but there were two horrible things. But he did decide that, because that's what we get in the Vulgate. The Vulgate is the, is the Latin Bible, obviously. At the very bottom of the page, I give you the Douay-Rance translation of the Bible. The point about this translation is it's a Roman Catholic translation made in the Renaissance, and it is a translation from the Latin. Unlike the King James Bible, where they went back and tried to retranslate from the Hebrew and the Greek. So this really tells you what is in the Vulgate. And what is in there? The horse leech hath two daughters that say, bring, bring. Then you get, there are three things that never are satisfied, and the fourth that saith, never saith, it is enough. Hell, the mouth of the womb, and the earth, which is not satisfied. Now... What uh, Chaucer has in his text glossed over as woman's love, notice, is in verse 16 of the Vulgate, very distinctly called the Oath Vulve. Three things uh, are insatiable. One, fire. Can't get enough. Two, Desert land, you never could give it enough water. 
And the third is this thing called the oats vulvi. Now, oats is a wonderful word in Latin because it means two different things. It means mouth uh, and it means bone. And you can't tell which it is until you get into the oblique, uh, into the oblique uh, cases. Now, this is obviously a euphemism for the female sexual organ. This is one of the, this is one of the three insatiabilities, along with wildfire uh, and the desert. But this wonderful pun on the word oats means that it's almost as though it is this part of the wife of Bath that is doing the talking. Now look, the two daughters of, of the of the bloodsucker. One of them, they both say, "Bring it on! Bring it on!" Can't get enough, can't get enough. One of them is avarice, very clearly. I want as much money as I possibly can get. And that's going to be the partner. <laughs> the other one is the wife of Bath. And as you can see, she says, you know, I wish I had as many uh, sexual partners as uh, King Solomon did. He had 10,000. I'd like to have more than that, uh, and, and so on. So you get, I think, an image in the wife of Bath uh, and in uh, the partner of this uh, extraordinary, uh, ex extraordinary thing. Another amazing thing about the Life of Bath prologue is, of course, the book that is central to the second part of it. This is one of these collections of anti-matrimonial texts. It's called, in her terms, the Book of Wicked Weavers, the Book of Bad Women. And her husband sits around reading this damn thing Day in, ho, 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 here's a really good one kind of, kind of thing. Okay. Now, it's arguable that nobody, in fact, it's, I've just shown you, I think, nobody, like, although the wife of Bath looks incredibly realistic, this is the most textually constructed of all Chaucer's characters. She comes out of Ovid, she comes out of the Gospel of St. John, she comes out of St. Jerome, and so on. There's a certain way, it seems to me, in which you can say that all of her excesses her excessive sexual appetite, her fancy clothes, her domineering attitude, all of these are the inventions of this body of literature persuading people not to get married. The analogy I drew in, my, uh, in one of my precepts is with the Frankenstein monster. Dr. Frank, the, the real Frankenstein, you know, Frankenstein, uh, Dr. Frankenstein, and creates the monster. And it's a fantastic work of uh, creation and so on. And then that thing turns upon him and destroys him to, a, to the extent that the wife of Bath has been created by this anti-feminist literature. Don't you see she does the same thing? That is, she gets in a fight with her husband. She says, you're not going to read this damn book anymore. She tears the pages of the book out. She throws them into the fire. And then she has a boxing match with her husband, which, from a medieval point of view, I think is meant to be funny. It's hardly funny from our point of view. But she triumphs in that. And her remark is, he gaffed me all the bridle in me hung. He gave me the bridle. Now remember old lay of Aristotle and women on top, jumping up on top of Aristotle, play a game for me, be my horse. Uh, of remedies of love, she knew portanza, for she could of that art, the old uh, danza. So it's an absolutely amazing 
uh, performance. <clears throat> but of course, there's a lot. You can see why she's the feminist consciousness of, of saucer studies, because she makes a lot of per terribly powerful points. For example, at the bottom of column one, on page 114, she goes through the various contents of the Book of Wicked Weavers, and she says, who do you think wrote all this crap anyway? You know, <coughs> a bunch of old guys in bathrobes are the ones who wrote this book because you'll never find a churchman who says anything good about women, except they be of all these saints leavers, unless they be ascetics who live out in a cave and do nothing but beat their breasts with sharp rocks you know, and pray 24 hours a day. And of course, that is the genre, uh, one of the most popular genres of medieval literature, uh, that kind of hagiography. And then she asked this question, who painted the lion? I'm asking you, who painted the lion? The question, what she wants you to see is that you walk into your London gentleman's club, and there, over the fireplace, is a big oil painting of a mighty white hunter He's holding a big gun. He's wearing a pith helmet. There's a dead lion down there, and he has his foot on the neck of the lion. And the question is, who drew that painting? <coughs> was it a lion or was it a man, do you suppose? This is said, if women started doing the painting, if women started writing the book, you'd get a different story. <laughs> now, if ever there was a wonderful dream projection, it seems to me to be the wife of Bath herself, right? Okay, She is now given an opportunity to paint the lion. As you know, I don't like to make these 19th and 20th century Freudian projections back into the 14th century, but boy, does this ever look like wish fulfillment. Here is an old woman who fears that she's lost her beauty and her sexuality and so on, and she tells a story about an old woman who turns into Switchowentia, you know, and, and gets married to this handsome knight. At the, it, it, it is a dream uh, come true. So she is telling the story, but of course, since it's Chaucer, there are going to be some tricks to it. So let's go very quickly at the Wife of Bath's tale itself. This is one of two tales, the other being the uh, Franklin's tale, that is set in a kind of obscure pre-Christian antiquity. The Knight's Tale has a similar uh, setting, but we saw that that setting was probably purposeful and thematic. He's trying to draw some kind of contrast between the way things used to be and the way things are now, or the way they ought not to be. But the wife of Bath, in order to find the space she needs for her sexual fantasies and so on, needs to get out of the Christian world. So she goes back to the wonderful days of old King Arthur. In the old days of King Arthur, of which the Britons spake in great honor, all this land was fulfilled of Faria, the Alpha Queen with her jolly compania, bonced full oft in many a grain a maid. This was the old opinion, as he said, he spake a many hundred year ago. All that's gone now, the way I feel when I wander up and down Route 1. There used to be potato fields here, you know. Now there's a Ramada Inn. Now all you can find says the wife of Bath, are these goddamn friars everywhere. <laughs> there used to be these great succubi. You know what these are? These are these kind of mysterious spirits, and a girl could go out in the woods and have a really good time. You know, you'd have something to tell about. 
besides just gathering mushrooms when you got home. Now you can't find any of these because there are these damn friars everywhere. There's a wonderful Wife of Bath coloring book that is published in San Francisco. If you ever get a chance, get, get a hold of it. Because the scene in which you have 10,000 friars going around, you know, blessing everything, is a, re- a really funny one. In other words, the friars, Christianity, they've ruined this wonderful old world of King Arthur. But this is the time that I was talking about. Now, what is so wonderful about the old world of King Arthur? What seems to be so wonderful about it is that you get the most casual rape this side of two gentlemen of Rona. There was a knight who was down hunting by the waterside. He quit hunting. He saw a woman, and he raped her. That's how the, the, the story uh, begins. Now, in these old days of King Arthur, though, they didn't mess around. You know, uh, this was a capital offense. They capture him and say, off with your head. And now you get a situation, I'm afraid, that is very much like the one that you already ran into in the Knight's Tale. That is, the women of the court see this really cute rapist, and they say, oh, gee, it would be kind of waste, you know, just to chop his head off right now, you know. Can we play with him, basically, for a while? We're going to play the following game, the great Freudian game. You know the great question that Freud is asked. What does woman want? That's the Freudian question. And they say, let's send him out for a year and a day. If he doesn't get the right answer, we'll chop his head off when he gets back. But he's got to go out and find out what it is that women want most. Well, I mean, he doesn't have much chance. I mean, choice. Either it's you know decapitation or this odd sort of gallop pole thing that he's uh, supposed to do. I'd love to see how you conduct such a survey. Excuse me, is the lady of the house home? You know, this, this kind of thing. Tell me, madam, what do women want most? But that's exactly what he does. And notice that there are all sorts of really quite plausible answers to what women uh, want most. This is at line 945, uh, just before, before that. Uh, some said that we live in best, for to be fray, and do Rick does his last. That is to say, we like independence that nobody reprave us over vis. They say that we been weaves and no thing niece, for truly there is none of us all, if any wick will claw us on the gall, that we won't kick, for he hath set us so a say, and he shall find that it is dope. There are all sorts of like money, good sex life, nice clothes, have honor, and then at a certain point on the back of this all-star handout uh, uh, that, that you have, it seems to me that the text goes tilt in a pretty obvious way. The text goes tilt because it says, uh, actually, uh, one of what one of the women said is, what we like most is to be trusted with secrets by our husbands so that we can really enjoy their trust and, and, and keep, keep that, uh, keep that uh, 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 secret. Some say the great delete had way for to been holding stable and exacre and in no purpose steadfastly to dwell, and not berea a thing that men us tell. But that tal is not worth a rakasteva, she says herself. That taste, I don't know how much a rake handle is worth. Two farts, three butterflies, four beans, 16 straws. Notice all these things in Chaucer that such and such is not worth a, you fill in the uh, blank. And then she says, 
the way I can prove that to you is by telling the story of, of Midas. Go read Ovid if you want to find the story of Midas. This is uh, what, what she says. But here's the story she tells. She says that uh, Midas, you know, Midas was really stupid. He was the guy who, uh, in a singing contest between Apollo and the goatee god Pan, chose Pan. All the rest of the gods said, oh, you're so stupid, Midas. We're going to give you ass's ears. So he has these great donkey ears, and that's kind of embarrassing if you're a king. So he grows long hair to cover his ass's ears. But there's somebody who has to know about the ass's ears, and that is to say the, uh, the, 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 the barber. Now, according to the wife of Bath, this is his wife. His wife, you know, is, knows the secret of his, of his hair. And it's one of these burning secrets. You just cannot, gosh, I, I had to tell somebody. It'd be very embarrassing if the world knew that my husband has asses ears. So she goes out, thirsty woman-like, to a watery place. She puts her mouth down to the water, and she says, my husband has asses ears. Got rid of that. Thank God. It's over. I don't need to worry about it anymore. From that marshy place, up springs a syrinx. That's a special kind of uh, reed. It's the reed, indeed, out of which Pan's pipes are made. And when the wind blows across the marsh, the whole world hears it uh, saying, King Midas has asses ears. <laughs> King Midas has asses ears. Now, if I've given you the Ovidian text from which this is taken. And there is one very, very significant difference. The difference is this, that in Ovid's text, there is no wife. The person who betrays the secret is not a woman, but a male barber, a, a famulus, one of his household. Now, do you see what's happened? Here's the wife of Bath, big moment, Cecil B. DeMille trumpet. You're shot, you know. The conductor of the orchestra points directly to her and says, your turn to paint the lion. And so what we expect, I hope, is some sort of wonderful feminist text. And what she does is come up with a misogynist anecdote. The fact that Midas's wife betrayed him, even though there was no Midas's wife in the original tale. Well, I think that is really pretty nifty, actually. So what I have to ask you, and I do it each year with increasing trepidation as the secular generations roll on, but I have to ask you if you can think of anywhere in world literature where you have a wife who is also a barber. Can anybody think of such a person? Delilah! Oh man, this is a great class. Absolutely. Delilah is actually mentioned, if you remember. Probably don't because it's such a dense text. Delilah is mentioned explicitly in the Wife of Bath uh, prologue. Samson, you know, this great judge, this great hero, whose strength was in his hair. That was his great secret. His strength was in his hair. And the Philistines, who were his enemy, came to his girlfriend, uh, Delilah, and said, we'll pay you a lot of money if you will tell us how we can capture Samson. So she, you know, snuggles up to him and says, oh, honey, if you really trust me, if you really love me, you will tell me. Uh, and he's a little suspicious. He says, well, if you tie my hands with a certain kind of willow rope, then they'd be able to catch me. So she waits till he falls asleep, and she does that. And she says, Samson, the Philistines are here. He goes, boom, 
you know, to, oh, wait, oh, you honestly don't love me. I was just testing you. And you, if you know, if you loved me, you would really tell me. So eventually, you know, he does tell her that uh, his strength is in his hair. And when he falls asleep, you've probably seen a painting of this or a picture of this. There's a wonderful one on the cover of the Riverside Milton that gets used in that, in that course, where he's just sacked out on her lap. And she has these great garden shears, you know, and she's cutting off his hair. What terrible emblem of the female betrayal of male virtue, if you see what I mean, in, in world literature. And this is what the wife of Bath, <laughs> knowingly or unknowingly, uh, you know, sneaks into her text. I want you to think about that and try to figure out, you know, this doesn't force you toward any particular interpretation. Uh, well, I guess maybe it does. <laughs> uh, it certainly strongly suggests a, a certain interpretation, but it also leaves you with a moral. Ms. Hopkins, you know what the moral is? You can take the girl out of the Bible, but you can't take the Bible out of the girl. Did you write that down? <laughs> That's the end of the lecture. Okay. <laughs>